First scene, chapter eight of No Name. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Magdalena Cook. No Name by Wilkie Collins. First scene, chapter eight. When Magdalen and her father met in the shrubbery, Mr. Vanstone's face showed plainly that something had happened to please him since he had left home in the morning. He answered the question which his daughter's curiosity at once addressed to him, by informing her that he had just come from Mr. Clare's cottage, and that he had picked up in that unpromising locality a startling piece of news for the family at Combe Raven. On entering the philosopher's study that morning, Mr. Vanstone had found him still dawdling over his late breakfast, with an open letter by his side in place of the book which on other occasions lay ready to his hand at meal-times. He held up the letter the moment his visitor came into the room, and abruptly opened the conversation by asking Mr. Vanstone if his nerves were in good order, and if he felt himself strong enough for the shock of an overwhelming surprise. "'Nerves!' repeated Mr. Vanstone. "'Thank God! I know nothing about my nerves. If you have got anything to tell me, shock or no shock, out with it on the spot!' Mr. Clare held the letter a little higher, and frowned at his visitor across the breakfast-table. "'What have I always told you?' he asked, with his sourest solemnity of look and manner. "'A great deal more than I could ever keep in my head,' answered Mr. Vanstone. "'In your presence, and out of it,' continued Mr. Clare, "'I have always maintained that the one important phenomenon presented by modern society is the enormous prosperity of fools. Show me an individual fool, and I will show you an aggregate society which gives the highly favoured personage nine chances out of ten and grudges the tenth to the wisest man in existence. Look where you will, in every high place there sits an ass. Settle beyond the reach of all the greatest intellects in the world to pull him down. Over our whole social system, complacent imbecility rules supreme, snuffs out the searching light of intelligence with total impunity, and hoots owl-like in answer to every form of protest. See how well we all do in the dark? One of these days that audacious assertion will be practically contradicted, and the whole rotten system of modern society will come down with a crash. "'God forbid!' cried Mr. Vanstone, looking about him as if the crash was coming already. "'With a crash!' repeated Mr. Clare. "'There is my theory in few words. Now, for the remarkable application of it which this letter suggests. Here is my lout of a boy.' "'You don't mean that Frank has got another chance!' exclaimed Mr. Vanstone. "'Here is the perfectly hopeless booby Frank,' pursued the philosopher. "'He has never done anything in his life to help himself. "'And, as a necessary consequence, society is in a conspiracy to carry him to the top of the tree. "'He has hardly had time to throw away that chance you gave him before this letter comes, "'and puts the ball at his foot for the second time.' My rich cousin, who is intellectually fit to be at the tail of the family, and who is, therefore, as a matter of course, at the head of it, has been good enough to remember my existence, and has offered his influence to serve my eldest boy. Read this letter, and then observe the sequence of events. My rich cousin is a booby who thrives on landed property. He has done something for another booby who thrives on politics, who knows a third booby who thrives on commerce. Who can do something for a fourth booby, thriving at present on nothing? Whose name is Frank? So the mill goes. So the cream of all human rewards is sipped in endless succession by the fools. 
I shall pack Frank off to-morrow. In course of time he'll come back again on our hands like a bad shilling. More chances will fall in his way, as a necessary consequence of his meritorious imbecility. Years will go on. I may not live to see it. No more than you. It doesn't matter. Frank's future is equally certain either way. Put him into the army, the church, politics, what you please, and let him drift. He'll end in being a general, a bishop, or minister of state, by dint of the great modern qualification of doing nothing, whatever to deserve his place. With this summary of his son's worldly prospects, Mr. Clare tossed the letter contemptuously across the table, and poured himself out another cup of tea. Mr. Vanstone read the letter with eager interest and pleasure. It was written in a tone of somewhat elaborate cordiality, but the practical advantages which it placed at Frank's disposal were beyond all doubt. The writer had the means of using a friend's interest, interest of no ordinary kind, with a great mercantile firm in the city, and he had at once exerted this influence in favour of Mr. Clark's eldest boy. Frank would be received in the office on a very different footing from the footing of an ordinary clerk, he would be pushed on at every available opportunity, and the first good thing the house had to offer, either at home or abroad, would be placed at his disposal. If he possessed fair abilities and showed common diligence in exercising them, his fortune was made, and the sooner he was sent to London to begin the better for his own interests it would be. "'Wonderful news!' cried Mr. Vanstone, returning the letter. "'I'm delighted. I must go back and tell them at home.' This is fifty times the chance that mine was. What the deuce do you mean by abusing society? Society has behaved uncommonly well, in my opinion. Where's Frank? Lurking, said Mr. Clare. It is one of the intolerable peculiarities of louts that they always lurk. I haven't seen my lout this morning. If you meet with him anywhere, give him a kick and say I want him. Mr. Clare's opinion of his son's habits might have been expressed more politely as to form, but, as to substance, it happened on that particular morning to be perfectly correct. After leaving Magdalen, Frank had waited in the shrubbery at a safe distance, on the chance that she might detach herself from her sister's company, and join him again. Mr. Vanstone's appearance immediately on Nora's departure, instead of encouraging him to show himself, had determined him on returning to the cottage. He walked back discontentedly, and so fell into his father's clutches, totally unprepared for the pending announcement, in that formidable quarter of his departure for London. In the meantime, Mr. Vanstone had communicated his news, in the first place to Magdalen, and afterward, on getting back to the house, to his wife and Miss Garth. He was too unobservant a man to notice that Magdalen looked unaccountably startled, and Miss Garth unaccountably relieved, by his announcement of Frank's good fortune. He talked on about it, quite unsuspiciously, until the luncheon-bell rang, and then, for the first time, he noticed Nora's absence. She sent a message downstairs, after they had assembled at the table, to say that a headache was keeping her in her own room. When Miss Garth went up shortly afterward to communicate the news about Frank, Nora appeared, strangely enough to feel very little relieved by hearing it. Mr. Francis Clare had gone away on a former occasion, she remarked, and had come back. He might come back again and sooner than they any of them thought for. She said no more on the subject than this. She made no reference to what had taken place in the shrubbery. Her unconquerable reserve seemed to have strengthened its hold on her since the outburst of the morning. 
She met Magdalen later in the day, as if nothing had happened. No formal reconciliation took place between them. It was one of Nora's peculiarities to shrink from all reconciliations that were openly ratified, and to take her shy refuge in reconciliations that were silently implied. Magdalen saw plainly, in her look and manner, that she had made her first and last protest. Whether the motive was pride or sullenness, or distrust of herself, or despair of doing good, their result was not to be mistaken. Nora had resolved on remaining passive for the future. Later in the afternoon, Mr. Vanstone suggested a drive to his eldest daughter, as the best remedy for her headache. She readily consented to accompany her father, who thereupon proposed, as usual, that Magdalen should join them. Magdalen was nowhere to be found. For the second time that day, she had wandered into the grounds by herself. On this occasion, Miss Garth, who, after adopting Nora's opinions, had passed from the one extreme of overlooking Frank altogether, to the other extreme of believing him capable of planning an elopement at five minutes' notice, volunteered to set forth immediately, and do her best to find the missing young lady. After a prolonged absence, she returned unsuccessful, with the strongest persuasion in her own mind that Magdalen and Frank had secretly met one another somewhere but without having discovered the smallest fragment of evidence to confirm her suspicions. By this time the carriage was at the door, and Mr. Vanstone was unwilling to wait any longer. He and Nora drove away together, and Mrs. Vanstone and Miss Garth sat at home over their work. In half an hour more Magdalen composedly walked into the room. She was pale and depressed. She received Miss Garth's remonstrances with a weary inattention, explained carelessly that she had been wandering in the wood, took up some books and put them down again, sighed impatiently, and went away upstairs to her own room. "'I think Magdalen is feeling the reaction after yesterday,' said Mrs. Vanstone quietly. "'It is just as we thought. Now the theatrical amusements are all over, she is fretting for more.' Here was an opportunity of letting in the light of truth on Mrs. Vanstone's mind, which was too favourable to be missed. Miss Garth questioned her conscience, saw her chance, and took it on the spot. "'You forget,' she rejoined, "'that a certain neighbour of ours is going away to-morrow. "'Shall I tell you the truth? "'Magdalene is fretting over the departure of Francis Clare.' Mrs. Vanstone looked up from her work with a gentle, smiling surprise. "'Surely not,' she said. It is natural enough that Frank should be attracted by Magdalen, but I can't think that Magdalen returns the feeling. Frank is so very unlike her, so quiet and undemonstrative, so dull and helpless. Poor fellow, in some things. He is handsome, I know, but he is so singularly unlike Magdalen that I can't think it possible. I can't indeed. My dear good lady, cried Miss Garth, in great amazement, do you really suppose that people fall in love with each other on account of similarities in their characters? In the vast majority of cases, they do just the reverse. Men marry the very last women, and women the very last men, whom their friends would think it possible they could care about. Is there any phrase that is oftener on all our lips than, What can have made Mr. So-and-so marry that woman? Or, How could Mrs. So-and-so throw herself away on that man? Has all your experience of the world never yet shown you that girls take perverse fancies for men who are totally unworthy of them? Very true, said Mrs. Vanstone composedly. I forgot that. Still, it seems unaccountable, doesn't it? 
"'Unaccountable, because it happens every day,' retorted Miss Garth good-humouredly. "'I know a great many excellent people who reason against plain experience in the same way, "'who read the newspapers in the morning and deny in the evening "'that there is any romance for writers or painters to work upon in modern life. "'Seriously, Mrs. Vanstone, you may take my word for it. "'Thanks to those wretched theatricals, Magdalen is going the way with Frank "'that a great many young ladies have gone before her.' He is quite unworthy of her. He is, in almost every respect, her exact opposite. And, without knowing it herself, she has fallen in love with him on that very account. She is resolute and impetuous, clever and domineering. She is not one of those model women who want a man to look up to, and to protect them. Her beau ideal, though she may not think it herself, is a man she can henpeck. Well, one comfort is, there are far better men, even of that sort, to be had than Frank. It's a mercy he is going away, before we have more trouble with them, and before any serious mischief is done. Poor Frank, said Mrs. Vanstone, smiling compassionately. We have known him since he was in jackets, and Magdalen in short frocks. Don't let us give him up yet. He may do better this second time. Miss Garth looked up in astonishment. "'And suppose he does better?' she asked. "'What then?' Mrs. Vanstone cut off a loose thread in her work and laughed outright. "'My good friend,' she said, "'there is an old farmyard proverb which warns us not to count our chickens before they are hatched. "'Let us wait a little before we count ours.' It was not easy to silence Miss Garth when she was speaking under the influence of a strong conviction, but this reply closed her lips. She resumed her work and looked and thought unmutterable things. Mrs. Vanstone's behaviour was certainly remarkable under the circumstances. Here, on one side, was a girl with great personal attractions, with rare pecuniary prospects, with a social position which might have justified the best gentleman in the neighbourhood in making her an offer of marriage, perversely casting herself away on a penniless, idle young fellow who had failed at his first start in life and who, even if he succeeded in his second attempt, must be for years to come in no position to marry a young lady of fortune on equal terms. And there, on the other side, was that girl's mother, by no means dismayed at the prospect of a connection which was, to say the least of it, far from desirable, but by no means certain, judging her by her own words and looks, that a marriage between Mr. Vanstone's daughter and Mr. Clare's son might not prove to be as satisfactory a result in the intimacy between the two young people as the parents on both sides could possibly wish for. It was perplexing in the extreme. It was almost as unintelligible as the past mystery, that forgotten mystery of now, of the journey to London. In the evening Frank made his appearance, and announced that his father had mercilessly sentenced him to leave Comraven by the parliamentary train the next morning. He mentioned this circumstance with an air of sentimental resignation, and listened to Mr. Vanstone's boisterous rejoicings over his new prospects with a mild and mute surprise. His gentle melancholy of look and manner greatly assisted his personal advantages. In his own effeminate way he was more handsome than ever that evening. His soft brown eyes wandered about the room with a melting tenderness. His hair was beautifully brushed, his delicate hands hung over the arms of his chair with a languid grace. He looked like a convalescent Apollo. Never, on any previous occasion, had he practised more successfully the social art which he habitually cultivated. 
the art of casting himself on society in the character of a well-bred incubus, and conferring an obligation on his fellow-creatures by allowing them to sit under him. It was undeniably a dull evening. All the talking fell to the share of Mr. Vanstone and Miss Garth. Mrs. Vanstone was habitually silent. Nora kept herself obstinately in the background. Magdalen was quiet and undemonstrative beyond all former precedent. From first to last she kept rigidly on her guard. The few meaning looks that she cast on Frank flashed at him like lightning, and were gone before anyone else could see them. Even when she brought him his tea, and when, in doing so, her self-control gave way under the temptation which no woman can resist, the temptation of touching the man she loves, even then she held the saucer so dexterously that it screened her hand. Frank's self-possession was far less steadily disciplined. It only lasted as long as he remained passive. When he rose to go, when he felt the warm, clinging pressure of Magdalen's fingers round his hand, and the lock of her hair which she slipped into it at the same moment, he became awkward and confused. He might have betrayed Magdalen, and betrayed himself, but for Mr. Vanstone, who innocently covered his retreat by following him out, and patting him on the shoulder all the way. "'God bless you, Frank,' cried the friendly voice that never had a harsh note in it for anybody. "'Your fortune's waiting for you. Go in, my boy. Go in and win.' "'Yes,' said Frank. "'Thank you.' It will be rather difficult to go in and win at first. Of course, as you have always told me, a man's business is to conquer his difficulties, and not to talk about them. At the same time, I wish I didn't feel quite so loose as I do in my figures. It's discouraging to feel loose in one's figures. Oh yes, I'll write and tell you how I get on. I'm very much obliged by your kindness, and very sorry I couldn't succeed with the engineering. I think I should have liked engineering better than trade. It can't be helped now, can it? Thank you again. Good-bye. So he drifted away into the misty commercial future, as aimless, as helpless, as gentlemanlike as ever. End of chapter 8